want to talk about classic cryptids. Weird stuff. Vampires and werewolves and... Hey, hey, everyone. This is Brandon getting ready for another episode. And today we have a special guest host, our unrefined friend that you may remember as a lifelong musician, music teacher, and a passion for sharing Jesus. But what you do not know is his latest endeavors with Skywatch TV that are to be released in early November. You'll have to check those out. That's right. I'm talking about the one and only Kenny C. Hey, Kenny. Hey, what's up? (laughs) I'm here again. Yeah, Dude, again, why do you yeah. keep showing up on Unrefined, man? I, I like you guys. Y'all are fun, yeah. man. I like it. It's good stuff. Well, I, I, that's all I want. It, it needs to be fun. I mean, if it's not fun, it's not worth doing. So, all right. I'm, and here, our, I'm here for Judd. That's what I'm here for. Well, that's what I'm here for, too. So, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. And speaking of that, he already gave away our guest tonight. Whoops. Mr. Historian Dr. Judd Burton, director of the Bibli- Institute of Biblical Anthropology, author of numerous books, so many I can't name all of them. And you may have heard of him before on other podcasts, Blurry and etc. He has incredible knowledge on insights on many biblical and fringe topics, which we are going to tap that wheelhouse of knowledge tonight. Yes, we are. Woo. So uh, welcome, Dr. Judd Burton, to the show. So since this is the... Uh, creepy season of the year, the month of October. I wanted to have you on my show, and I want to talk about um, classic cryptids, is what I'm calling it. You know, like, before Bigfoot, dogman, uh, werewolves, vampires, and just dive into all the biblical backing for that kind of stuff. I mean, I tell people now that vampires are biblical and they look at me like I'm a nut job, you know? And, <laughs> and so, and so I, have, I have no no frame of reference to be able to tell them because I'm new to all this stuff. And I ha- I've signed up for your class, but I haven't taken it yet. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I take that class, I'll have the, the biblical background. But right now, yeah, and uh, I got my sons extremely interested in it. About a year ago, you recommended Midnight Mass on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And I watched, I watched that with my 20-year-old son. And, uh, man, he loved it. He says, is this accurate? I said, this is one of the most accurate movies so says dr judd mm-hmm. out there as far as vampires and stuff so my my son's interested in vampires but not you know twilight yeah right <laughs> so, right yeah because that's not really vampires but uh so uh where do we want to start this i mean um how do we want to go down this road you want any, any particular cryptid you want to start with first dr judd kenny's kenny's raising his hand I, I would like personally. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna interject something here, just so you understand. Uh, yeah. The, the connection that me and the DJB have. Um. When I when I just so I say like I when I met Dr. Judd, it was a couple of years ago, and a lot through some different people like Derek Gilbert and all them were talking about him. And they're like, you gotta talk to this guy, Judd Burton. Judd Burton. His name com- kept coming up, and and he's the reason I understand Caesarea Philippi now. Period. Mm-hmm. So, but what's funny is I decided about two years ago, I was taking Michael Heiser's classes and Judd was, I saw the stuff, he had his stuff. So I was like, I want to take a Judd Burton class. So I contacted him, we, we talked and he set me up for the thing and, and I, I decided to take the class. I was like, you know what? I'm going to take vampirology. I mean, I was looking at, I was like, how, how can this be biblical? And I was floored that when the textbooks we were reading and stuff, I was just absolutely floored about it. But this is, I'm going to toot my own horn here for a second because I, I took the vampirology class and the very first paper I wrote, you got to understand, I haven't been in college in 30 years. So writing a paper for me was a little crazy. So I was like, what am I thinking about doing here? But, but <laughs> so I wrote my week one paper and sent it to Judd and Judd sent it back to me. And, and this is how we, I knew we bonded completely on this. He said, your paper it's, it's fantastic. It's an A-plus paper. But he said, it is a Nuno Betancourt string-skipping solo of a paper. And I knew at that moment that we were brothers. Because he, he's big on the extreme and Nuno. But when he called it that, I was like, man. I was like, it couldn't. But I was I was really happy and proud of myself that I did that. So I really love the vampirology class. And I got a whole lot out of it. And I love when people ask me about it because I can kind of re- reference them to Judd. And they always go, 
I had somebody today, a student here, and I was talking about, I was going to do the podcast tonight, and I was showing some of Judd's books, and, and I was yeah. like, I took a class on vampirology, and they were like, you took, Whoa. really? And I said, and it's biblical, and they were like, they can't fathom it. It blows no, their minds, yeah, and they want to see it. I'm like, we can show you, Ooh. said, and it's it's worth doing. So I, I got to say this, man. I, I love the, the vampire stuff was what really got me kind of looking at some old things. So I'm going to let Dr. Judd talk about you know, some of the books and stuff that he uses and all that. I loved it. I loved the class. It was so much fun. I re highly recommend it. Kenny yeah. C gives it a big thumbs up. Yeah. Oh. Thank you, Kenny. And Thank Nuno, you. too. Yeah, and, for, and Nuno gets a thumbs up, too. Absolutely. That, <laughs> That's right. And that, Absolutely. That, that was, being, being a Berkeley guy, I knew that, and an extreme fan, I knew that Kenny would, would understand exactly what I meant. So that's a, that, those are high, high marks. Uh, when I, when I throw Nuno's name around, you know, it's high marks. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's it, man. It made me, yeah. it was one of those things where I, I still remember, I, I kind of, I talk about it. I'm like, dude, that's just awesome. You can't th you throw in Nuno, man. You're talking big stuff, but it was also, it was not, not just Nuno. It was the vampirology class, man. And I was, you know, I was excited that I actually was doing well writing a paper and doing that stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, my unrefined friends. I just want to tell you guys that I am so thankful that you are my life. Some of our best fans uh, have been writing to us and, and I, I just so encouraged about how lives are being transformed and people are getting something out of this podcast. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's why we're doing this is to glorify Jesus and to just look at the world and have a, a more open view of the seen and the unseen and the supernatural in the world. So while we're doing that, we're going to handle all different kinds of topics. But see, what I'd like for you to be involved in or part of is our members only group things that are coming in our members only group that are going to just blow your mind not to mention there's going to be episodes in there that you won't be able to hear just on the normal episode channel so make sure to visit our website at unrefinedpodcast.com and check out our members only community i just can't stress the fact that you know we're after building a community and there's there's so much out there you guys and there's so much coming i really believe we need to build these strong communities of christ followers to to be able to handle what might be coming in the in the future days we're sure that you'd be a good fit and we cannot wait i can't wait to see you there well um Kind of segueing into the topical material for tonight, you know, Extreme has a on their new album. They've got a song called um, "X Out," and uh, "X Out." Yeah, you, you me, yeah. and Tom Dunn and Vicky Joy Anderson did a. We did a um, audio topsy. Yeah, audio topsy analysis of that, and that's that's yeah. some pretty dire and dark stuff that it deals with it without letting the cat out of the bag too much. It's basically an analysis of the, the story of Lazarus and the rich man um, for, for viewers out there who want to check it out. But um, yeah, what most people are like, what in the world do vampires or any other sorts of cryptids or, or supernatural creatures have to do beyond the scope of angels and demons, which is sort of the, sort of the palette that we're, we're given, you know, um, in our early education about the Bible. At least that's how it was for me. I grew up in the Southern yeah, Baptist Church, and it was just like, you know, angels and demons, and we won't worry about the taxonomy or the complexity of, of, of different iterations of both of those. And of course, now, especially within the last 10 or 15 years, we know quite a bit more about just how diverse that world is and, and the kinds of, of created beings that people uh, that world and so yeah usually when when people there are usually two two things that people intersect with my work with in it one is Kenny's already mentioned it the Caesarea Philippi Mount Hermon work that I've done yeah. it, did my dissertation on and it devoted a lot of my research agenda to uh, and then this other seemingly unrelated uh, weird stuff vampires and werewolves and 
and uh, what I've, I've dubbed in recent years preternatural morphology because they typically have a supernatural and a natural element to them. Um, yeah. And, you know, undoubtedly one of the most iconic of those, one of the most perennial in folklore is the vampire. And that word comes to us from Eastern Europe uh, most directly, but uh, gosh, we could do a whole other podcast on the linguistic analysis of that word that I've <laughs> paper that I've, yeah. I've traced it back to the Proto-Indo-European and Anatolian world. Um, so it's coming out of Turkey. Like uh, God, Turkey is like a treasure trove stuff right now. Ancient Anatolia, prehistoric Anatolia. Um, at any rate, um, this idea of, of this this demonic spirit, this creature that that drains blood or life essence, uh, can be found in just about every culture all over the globe throughout history. And um, you know, because the image imagery of the vampire is sort of aired to us by uh, by way of popular culture and movies and cinema and TV and stuff like that, I mean, we still have the uh, the, the the classic uh, uh, Stoker vampire image that that, that remains yeah. kind of the iconic image. The 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 debauched Eastern European nobleman uh, mm -hmm. dressed in his his fancy clothes and um, that's the that's a it's literary and cinematic gloss of something that, that's much more archaic. Um, and to, to really dig down deep and understand what the vampire is through the lens of the Bible. And it does have, have biblical grounding. Um, you, you really have to like, you strip the cinematic and literary veneer uh, off of, off of the, the popular vampire and uh you know leave the plastic teeth and, and fangs at home uh because um that creature would with a number of variations that are are peculiar to whatever culture we find them in uh, again as, as i said is a near perennial in world history um wait hey yep hey judd can i i mean wait are you telling me that vampires don't sparkle <laughs> I, I'm not saying that some of them don't sparkle. I'm, I'm saying that, that that most of them probably don't sparkle. Um, okay, that's all I need to know, man. I just yeah. wanted to know if that's we, we just lost half of our our uh, you know fans right now. Oh no, what you're talking against the sparkle vampires? No, no, the, the Twilight. It's okay. The, hey, I'm not yeah. gonna say anything about it. But I saw. Don't hey, hate I'm on it, man. I'm not hating on them. I, you read I the book. You you read the book. Oh wow! I did read the books, man. I did read the books. Man. <laughs> My sentiments about uh, the whole Twilight, uh, whether it's the books or the movies, can be encapsulated in the meme that has uh, uh, Blade the Vampire Hunter standing behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah that's great. This is the ending that we should have gotten. Well, and that's part of. I mean, all joking aside, that's that's also another kind of. Um, uh, in, in rather insidious element, you know, and, and gives us some insight into the demonic stratagem is just, you know, how cool and sexy and 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 popular vampires are. Where whereas for not just centuries in literature, but for millennia in in religious belief, uh, the the vampire was rightly considered a an anathema. Uh, was considered uh, uh, a curse. Yeah. A curse. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a danger in, in making uh, making that sort of creature laudable, you know, and something to aspire right. to. Well, it, and there's there's a whole there's a whole genre in literature now that is romantic science fiction vampire werewolf lycanthrope. All yeah. Oh yeah. 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 It's like what. Romantic lycanthropes? Uh, yeah. Whoa. Well, I, I think that in terms of, of literature, literature, Anne Rice probably towed the line as close to that as you're going to get. Yeah. And then everybody since then has just sort of gone over the line. Even even with right. even with Anne Rice's vampires, even though they were they were licentious and 
and and uh, carnal and and uh, all, all the the ba- baser sorts of qualities we associate with humanity. There was this sense yeah. of like they they admitted that they were monstrous. Like they there was like this innate sense of 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 that you were you were doing something that was not natural that was evil uh that but nonetheless it was it sustained you and so it, at least at least there's this sort of inner dialogue that's going on and again i'm not lionizing vampires and Anne Rice's novels or anything but at least there's this sort yeah. of inner dialogue you know where they're 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 coming forth and ad- admitting you know that yeah we're monsters you know well, at least they're, at least they're not tragic heroes like all the new stuff. They, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and I, I got one thing that I when I did when I took my the class and stuff that really struck with me was um, as far as for Christians was Leviticus seventeen ten through fourteen. It says, "If any man who serve the house of Israel um, and of the strangers that sojourn a." Among them, eat blood. I will set my face against his soul, and I will cut him off from among his people. Oh wow, that's pretty. To me, when you read that and you realize that you're thinking, I mean, it's already being told we're not supposed to drink the blood. We're not. To, so when start you're getting into this vampiric type stuff, you realize that this is very serious stuff. Mm-hmm. And we and and popular culture has kind of changed it on a thing. You know, oh yeah, it's cool. We drink blood and mm-hmm. you know all this stuff. Does that relate even to the Acts Council it, 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 when they're talking about drinking blood? I mean, is that the same similar well, those, carryover from? Yeah, those same Old Testament proscriptions would have been at play um, at yeah. that, that council. Um, the uh, you know, it's sort of like you know, Yahweh doesn't throw this stuff out for the for the ancient Hebrews. You know, just just because it's novel. But it's right. because of the 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 reality, you know, the uh, of potential harm, you know, that it was possible to to utilize blood in a, a ritual ritual setting uh, to to traffic with demons. You know, it's the same sort of thing, um, you know, with necromancy and all of the other prohibitions and the Levitical laws. You know, there there was a reason for that is because, uh, you know, there. You you were opening yourself up to trafficking with not just not just the human dead, but in particular the non-human dead that were sort of parading as the human dead. Uh, so, mm. and I think you know, in, to my mind, Doctor Heiser really sort of closes the book, you know, on on, on that in terms of the prohibitions, but in in, in terms of of you know, vampires having a biblical grounding. I, I suppose the first time that I ever really thought about it was when I read uh, Montague Summers' The Vampire is Kith and Kin, which is the text for the vampirology class Kenny was talking about. And mm-hmm. um, I, I I cannot stress just what a consummate scholar this guy was. Like a, a, a good sixth of this book is, is footnotes. He had command. Mm. He had a... a dizzying command of, of modern and ancient languages and was really able to access a lot of the source material. Um, Montague Summers was really the first scholar that I ever saw tying the the vampire to the antediluvian world, to the Genesis 6 event. And mm-hmm. it's really just a, a, a brief passage uh, in, the, in the prefatory material where he makes this remark about um, uh, a passage from Enoch where the judgment that's handed down on the giants is that they would be destroyed in the flood, but their spirits would continue on and that they would, they would hunger and thirst and never be sated uh, that they, mm. they would forever seek to indwell flesh because they had lost their own. Um, they would uh, basically hamper mankind, plague mankind. Uh, and wander the earth um, in search of of trying to recapture what, something of, of their life uh, before the destruction of the flood. And of course, any of your listeners or viewers that are familiar with um, the Genesis six event and the, the commentary from the yeah. apocryphal literature 
know that that we get a, a kind of character breakdown of what what the pre-flood giants were like they were bloodthirsty and blood drinkers and um, mm, animals yeah. yeah so yeah. all of those all of those abilities all of those hungers and desires are kept intact in spirit form so that they're able to to utilize if you want to call it watcher tech you can but it's the this ability to, to manifest preternaturally um now that's one aspect of that's that's really the grounding portion of of how vampires are related to the biblical world if you're taking it back to the earliest of times um but there are some interesting clues in the old testament uh that link not not only that idea to biblical theology, but to the mindset of the people living in Israel and Canaan at, at the time when the events of the Old Testament were taking place. Um, we have references to vampires in the Old Testament. Uh, mm. And I'll, I'll primarily talk about two tonight. Um, but the first one is probably the most familiar one um, to audiences, and that's Lilith. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Lilith shows up in Isaiah 34, and she's in a couple of places in the Psalms. But our, our translations of, of these passages are are truncated in a lot of a lot of places. They don't, um, you know, most uh, particularly that passage in Isaiah. You know, usually um, Lilith. Uh, is translated as a screech owl, uh, in some cases a night demon, which is more accurate. Uh, but it, you rarely actually see the rendering of the name Lilith or the Lilis. Um, right there, she's mentioned right there next to the um, the Sherim, which are, are also poorly translated in most translations, usually as the he-goats, but these were essentially goat men. They were satyrs, uh, goat demons. Satyrs, yeah. Um, so the the Lilit or uh, uh, Lilitu or Lilu um, comes from Mesopotamia. Uh, it was well known throughout the ancient Near East. Um, obviously, the not just the author of the book, authors of the books of the Old Testament, but um, the audience would have been very familiar with um, the Lilith. Um, Lilith was the she was eventually given the moniker of Queen of Demons. This is in, la oh, wow. this is in later material, but um, uh, particularly in Jewish folklore. But what we know from the ancient stuff, the kind of analogous sources in, in Mesopotamia, uh, is that the uh, Lilith was a, a night demon with um, almost kind of siren-like features. Uh, she had talents like a... a Al, uh, very much like the the uh, the Roman Strix, uh, mm. but she would feed on the blood of of innocent children uh, mm. and devour devour their flesh. But she was also known for stealing the life force or the virility of men. Um, so L Lilith was notorious. Um, why, why don't we see more references to Lilith if vampirism is, in fact, in the Old Testament? Well, you have to consider, again, the audience. Uh, they would have not, you know, it's sort of like an implicit um, element of culture that you wouldn't have to mention to an audience because they would have, they would have known the subtlest of, of implications uh, regarding Lilith. But here you have it articulated, you know, very explicitly in these passages, particularly in Isaiah 34, uh, where the, the Lilith is actually spelled out and, and listed. So, um, is she in Psalm, Psalm 91 too? I think, uh, yeah, I think, is, that's is right. there I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which was, a, yeah, which I, was a Psalm 91 and 92, interestingly enough, were exorcism Psalms. Uh, yeah. they were found, uh, uh, in, in the context of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were found in a cache of documents with other um, exorcism 
uh, passages. The, these were largely apocryphal, but it's interestingly that, interesting that they were all grouped together. Hmm. Yeah, I, I pretty much have to go back because I don't know Hebrew. I know Greek, but the, I, I pretty much have to go back to the Wycliffe translation to really get the mm -hmm. the full translation of this without it being, you know, mm -hmm. neuter neuterized, basically right. neutered or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So, and 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 Psalm ninety one in the uh, Wycliffe translation is is fascinating. I love mm -hmm. it. It's, it's really good at that. How does this Lilith re relate, Doctor Judd, to the Lilith that is supposedly the wife of Adam and all that all that stuff? Is that uh, the same Lilith, or is that a well, different it's, Lilith? It's the same. Uh, it's not the Lilith of antiquity. Um, the idea that Lilith was the first wife of Adam is a is a seed that really germinates in later Jewish folklore, um, beginning okay. late antiquity, going into the Dark Ages and Middle Ages. So that's a later interpretation. You know, you've got a host of other other pieces of Jewish literature, you know, that date to like the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, uh, like the uh, Sefer Kesedim would be one. Um, which, uh, it, interestingly enough, uh, brings me to another kind of vampire that doesn't get nearly as much coverage or press as the uh, as the Lilith, but you know, again, there it is, and it's mentioned in uh, Proverbs chapter thirty, uh, and this is the Aluka, and oh. the Aluka is usually translated as um, a leech or a leech worm, um, mm. but there are scholars that contend that this is actually an older, uh, you know, one of these ancient Near Eastern demons. Um, and it it's a it's a vampire demon, um, yeah. It, that that um, that that morpheme, which would transliterate to LK, you put a, a a vowel in there. You could kind of play fast and loose with the vowels in Hebrew. Uh, look, um, is indicative of of blood drink. Uh, so the the aluka is. Is also a shapeshifter, as it turns out. Um, Interesting. In parts of the ancient Near East, in fact, um, although our our evidence for that is sparser in the, the ancient world, this other Jewish book that I mentioned a moment ago, the Sefer Kesedim, um, mentions the Aluka and and says that it's a a, a particular kind of shapeshifter. In fact, that it's uh, a, basically a werewolf. Uh, it combines both oh, wow. the, the vampire and the werewolf um, and would do what you would think the typical lycanthrope would do uh, to devour flesh and to drink blood. Um, so here, here, the Aluka is kind of a crossroads of the vampire and the werewolf um, and mm. is, is to, to my mind, is equally interesting and pertinent because it represents another iteration of the vampire, but you also have have anchoring in the in the actual biblical text uh, that these were the these were things that were um, that were experienced um, by people in the biblical world. Wow! I keep thinking about that the the crossing over the was these um, the underworld movies with Kate Beckinsale where they had the whole thing where they had the vampires and the werewolves and they battled each other, and then there was this whole thing about having this one that was a, he was like hybrid, mm -hmm. both, he was both a vampire and wolf. It was supposed to bring them together and all their stuff. And mm -hmm. I don't know, it was, I, it's been a long time since I've seen that, but I just remember that being a big storyline of that. It was mm -hmm. kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's arguable that the creators of Underworld, you know, may have had access to that. You know, they consult all kinds of, of experts and scholars and the, now they use that material yeah. however they want to creatively, uh, but it's entirely possible that you know that. Oh yeah, they kind of they kind of hinted and toyed around with that in uh, um, Van Van Helsing a little bit, uh, which was yeah. Oh, yeah, which was a, ter a terrible movie. I was so disappointed with that movie. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I had hoped that it would actually be a serious treatment of uh, 
with Professor Van Helsing, but it, it turned out to be a little. I mean, it was fun. It was campy, but. Uh, sure. But, didn't they didn't they end up doing a whole Van Helsing series on sci-fi? Um, yes, but it's a uh, female. She's a, a female. It was female, yeah, like a yeah. descendant. Yeah. It was like yeah. a descendant or something like that. Yeah. 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 yeah that's interesting. Hey, I, I want to say something about when you were talking about um, Isaiah thirty-four fourteen, because you were the first person, Judd, that I'd actually seen that correlation. Where I read it for many years, and when I would read it in, in standard, you know. KJV, that's, that actually says the wild beast of the desert shall also meet with the wild beast of the island, mm -hmm. and the satyr shall cry to his fellow, the screech owl mm -hmm. also shall rest there. So forever I'd always read the satyr part I got, but the screech owl part never made that much sense until I started looking at other translations, like the Amplified, mm -hmm. where it said the creatures of the desert will encounter jackals and the hairy goat will call to its kind. Indeed, Lilith... And it's got night demon listed in parentheses. We'll settle that. We'll settle there and find herself a place of rest. I was blown away when I finally saw it. I was like, "Wait a minute! This is actually other translations have are actually put Lilith mm -hmm. and wow. night demon right there." And I was really shocked when I saw that because I'd never never seen it. Never made a thing. It was always just like it looked like they were talking about um, you know owls, a screech mm -hmm. owl. Well, and that's that's the. That's the Greek overlay, you know, from the Septuagint it is mm. basically what you have there. The this satyr comes through. What? Who knows what what decisions some translators make? We we know how postmodernized a lot of them are, you know, over the past sixty or seventy yeah. years. Um, yeah. But the you know the Septuagint is a a, a good lens to clarify uh, a lot of the material. But that the the screech owl is the Strix, you know, that's the, the, um, sovereign looking, you know, uh, demon and yeah. Roman, Greek and Roman mythology. And that's why I think that to me, when we started talking, when, when I took the class and stuff and started seeing these correlations, I was shocked that it was always like, well, why were they translated this way before? Why are, why, you know, I would read it just as a normal reading the Bible and it never meant anything more than screech owl. Then all of a sudden you see another translation and you're like, and it blatantly names Lilith mm -hmm. with night demon. Mm -hmm. And you're like, it's here. Mm -hmm. It's been here all along, mm -hmm. but I'd never seen that before. So that kind of throws in the, to me, the whole, the whole thing with these, you know, cryptids and demons and stuff that are biological, you know, it's very, it's there. Mm -hmm. It is, the, it is there. Yeah. My Greek professor, when I, when I first started, one of the first things he told us, I think day one, he said that, that translators are traitors, that they can't help <laughs> me. They, 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 they betray yeah. their biases and everything. And so, you know, there, mm -hmm. there's so many, so much politics involved in even the translation of the King James and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, mm -hmm. you know? And, and, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, no wonder the the further you get into modernism, the more it's going to try to whitewash all that kind of stuff Certainly. and totally eradicate it. Yep. Well, you know, post, um, you know, the big pushes for naturalism and materialism in the 19th century and the, the movement towards bio, you know, accepting biological macroevolution, you know, a lot of that, all of that colored, not just the hard sciences, but it affected the social sciences and the humanities too. Um, yeah. So I mean, it it almost completely restructured you know all of the subdisciplines in those respective fields, uh, so that you do you do end up getting um, a high almost a hypercritical, hyper materialistic translation in some of these cases, uh, where you know that that sort of rendering would certainly not make sense to anybody in the ancient world, people that were used to you know, already thinking about those kinds of things and in many cases right. likely having experienced, you know, in instances, some of these things. Um, so there's an, there's another, and by the way, uh, as a footnote to the last part of our discussion about the Aluka, my suspicion is because so many of the, Levantine languages had an impact on Greek uh, by way of orientalizing. Um, my suspicion is that words like 
um, Lucan or, or transliterated Lycan in English are probably borrow words from the morpheme in Aluka, the LK part, L-U-K, uh, that means the drinking of blood. And the connotation, connotation in the Greek sense would have been uh, with the, the Greek king by the same name, Lycan, uh, who of course became a wolf, was turned into a wolf by Zeus, according to the myth. Um, so my, my suspicion as a, a historian and an anthropologist is that, that that's how that word ended up in Greek vernacular uh, because those concepts predate what we find in uh, Greek culture and Greek, Greek language. Um, wow. But so uh, so so are you are you are you basically kind of saying that 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 lycanthropes are a subset of vampirism sort of? I mean, well, they're they're related. I mean, again, this sort of takes us back to the the pre-flood world, where right. you know most people are going to be familiar with the the hominid nephilim, the 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 human more human looking nephilim, but there were also chimerical nephilim that combined right. human and animal DNA, and so th those spirits are are almost uniquely suited or engineered, if you will. Uh, modified to, to actually become some of these later iterations like vampires and, and satyrs and werewolves, things of that nature. Uh, so there's definitely, wow. definitely a connection there. And I think that that's a, that's a linguistic anchor point um, in that discussion. Now that's just a hypothesis of mine right now. I haven't completely, right. you know, if you'll pardon the pun, I haven't completely fleshed that out yet. Uh, but that's, that'll be some of the future work that I do. Um, uh, I got a question. Hey, Judd, I, there's something for some reason that's popping in my brain right now from mm -hmm. one of your books. I want to say it was in Interview with the Giant. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember the terminology about something about like Vampire Zero mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. What exactly was that about? Uh, I chose that name because I was sort of, I think the subtitle of that chapter was. Um, um, something about a, a preternatural epidemiology. Um, and I called it, you know, sort of treating it like a supernatural disease. Um, oh, okay. Because that's, yeah, that's yeah. what I remember reading. That. I'd read that. And I was like, I remember that tying in thought it was a really, it made a lot of sense to me. I just remember the just that vampire zero, which kind of comes along in a lot of zombie so, apocalypse stuff. There's always a right. patient zero. Patient exactly. zero, yeah. Exactly. It always falls into this. So yeah. No. I thought that was really neat to put that in there. Well, let me ask you this, Judd, uh, if, if, if I can wrap my mind around this. So, all right, these chimeric Nephilim died, mm -hmm. and they've come back as disembodied spirits, and they can possess humans, and that's how a human being can go from a human to a wolf like that yes but, they, but they don't they don't necessarily need humans to do that uh, demons do all kinds of uh, things without without needing host. a human vessel um okay it's okay. just my my hypothesis is that they they're they inherited an ability or were taught an ability by their watcher forebears uh that that allowed them to combine the supernatural and the preternatural or the supernatural and the natural, um, which is where you get the preternatural, you know, you've got qualities right. of both so that you, you have physical werewolves and physical vampires, you know, there, but there's, there's a spiritual aspect to it. This can be seen in other cryptids too, like, um, you know, uh, Sasquatch or, or thought, you know, in some of their accounts, yeah. they appear, they, they seem to appear out of nowhere. Uh, they disappear that they, their appearances um, sometimes accompanied by strange lights and uh, other mm. kinds of paranormal phenomena. So there's definitely a preternatural element to a lot of um, Sasquatch encounters. Um, the same is true mm. for Dog Dogman. Um, yeah, watched, I want to talk about Dogman. I watched Man. a really excellent documentary uh, by Aaron Deese called the, based on a book that he wrote called the uh, The Dogman Triangle of Texas. Um, and it covers about 700, um, about 700 square miles. Uh, and the triangle points are at Dallas, Fort Worth on the one end, San Antonio, Austin on one end and Houston on the third end. And, and 
there are an inordinate number of sightings of dogmen in this area. And I, I watched it because it was on uh, um, Texas cryptids and uh, just kind Is that the hill country? Uh, yeah, basically the hill covers country a lot of it from North Texas into the hill country. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I was sort of halfway watching it and, and working on, a, on some notes for another paper. And I heard him, I heard him reference uh, a town, an area of that triangle that I had surveyed uh, a, a Spanish um, mission uh, for about 10 years. And um, uh, this was in the Lampasas, Texas area. And so my ears perked up and there were a number of, of had been a number of dog, dogman sightings and potential dogman murders. Um, mm. From that area, stretching all the way to a, a, a an army base nearby uh, Fort Hood and Colleen. Of course, I know that mm. area extremely well. I've, I've surveyed it for over a decade. Um, but the interesting thing about a lot of these dogmen is that um, they they can never be tracked back to the lair. You know, um, mm. if you if you do much hunting. Uh, or, or, or tracking or anything like that. Um, you know, most good trackers, hunters can, can track an animal pretty well. And it, and sometimes if, if an animal is close enough, they'll, they'll go back to a lair. Uh, but they're also, I mean, there are all sorts of ways, you know, you can do that by, by finding game paths and things like that. Um, but a lot of the accounts in this documentary uh, said that they, in fact, virtually all of them uh, said that they could, they never could track this thing back to a lair. Um, and so there, there's, there's kind of an otherworldly element to it there uh, that these things just sort of manifest and, and wreak, wreak havoc um, and disappear just as, as strangely as they, they appear. Um, well, and uh, aren't a lot of them located near military bases too? Isn't that another little conspiratorial common thing have you heard that well like i mean i suppose i haven't done the metrics on it but i suppose that some of them are um i don't think that i don't know why again i don't know that you know demons necessarily would you know they don't have to be near military bases to be able to yeah to do that but um you know if let's just say for argument's sake that some some arm of the government or, or, you know, corporation, uh, is, is manufacturing custom biologics, you know, of some kind, um, which by the way, colossal biosciences in Dallas is claiming to do They're the ones that are spearheading the, uh, recreating the mammoth herd to put back in Siberia under the auspices of climate change of all things. Uh, they also yeah. they also want to <laughs> they also want to recreate a, a population of Neanderthals and give them political and cultural authority. Um, <sighs> and this custom biologics <sighs> phrase that I use is actually right out of their paperwork uh, that they they could make custom biologics. And of course, we know all kinds of hybrids and chimeras, animal human chimeras, have been made in a laboratory setting for a couple of decades at the least, probably longer than that. Um, right. So that opens up a whole other can of worms, um, which is sort of yeah. peripheral to what we're talking about, but not unrelated. Right, right. Um, well, well, let me, let me ask you this. Okay. I want to go kind of go back a little bit back to the dog man. Would you tell our audience, just, just give us a basic definition of what is a dog man and like, what's the difference between a dog man and a werewolf and you know, that, that, that kind of dichotomy there. Not really you, much, not much at all. They're, vir- they're virtually identical. Um, Okay. One of the main differences is that there's more of a, in the case of the werewolf, let's say from the old world, um, this most of these are cases of shape shifting. Okay. Um, there are certain analogs to that, like the in, in the new world, like the um, the Manitou of the Algonquin speaking tribes. Um, one of the um, one of the sergeants in the Corps of Discovery on a Lewis and Clark expedition actually actually wrote about the Manitou in his journals uh, and that they were shapeshifters. Um, and in fact, 
the there are places in North America that are named after the Manitou, Manitoba, and uh, Canada, mm-hmm. Manitou Springs, and uh, up up close to where um, or not close, but but fairly close to where Doug Van Dorn lives in Colorado. Colorado, yeah, yeah. Colorado Springs, yeah. Man- yeah. Manitou Springs is is another uh, another place, but um, the Skinwalkers of of Navajo and Ute lore. Uh, are also analogs to that, but the dog man uh, isn't as readily associated with humans shape shifting into other creatures like wolves. It seems to be its own. Um, that that would be the main difference. Now it's okay. You know, just in terms of its form, it, it's very much related. And I would say, just in terms of its, um, in terms of its uh, uh, origin, you're you're going to have similar demonic roots and demonic origins. Um, but that's, there's, there's really not much of a difference in terms of, of dog man and, um, uh, werewolves, you know, where people want to draw that taxonomic line, probably at the shape shifting. Uh, although, you know, we've had millennia really in centuries to accumulate data on the old world werewolf and other kinds of weird creatures like a were jaguar or excuse me, the were jaguars new world, new world. Uh, but the, yeah. like the were hyena in in Africa. Uh, whereas, you know, we've really only, only had a few hundred years to record, uh, the history, much less the prehistory of this continent. Uh, we're still finding a lot of that out from the archeological record from the Aboriginal, uh, societies that lived in North and South America. Um, so, you know, to my mind, it, it, it in the long run, in terms of making a, a broader, more articulated taxonomy of these creatures, it may turn out to be important, uh, but it, it's it's kind of superficial at this point um, because the roots of both of those, the werewolf and the dogman, to my mind, are, are demonic simply because of the behaviors uh, that they exhibit. Um, but I th- are they both bipedal, or they are they? What would you they're, call well, they're both. I mean, there are instances of both. Um, you know, with the the these accounts of Dogman in Texas, um, they seemingly can stand up and and biped, uh, but they're they run quadrupedally. So there's something about their their musculature, their their frame, that allows them to to biped and quadruped, um, which is strange because if you look at, you know, people, you just, you look at a human being, we're sort of built to ambulate that way, but, um, simply because of the, the conjunction of our spine and our, our pelvis, uh, but quadrupeds are lower to the ground, you know, or their center of gravity is, is completely different. Than what it is. So there's some strange like meeting that allows ease of, of quadrupedalism and bipedalism. Um, and I'm getting really physical anthropology now, but uh, it, it's important to note that both that both bipedalism and quadrupedalism have been observed in the accounts. Hmm. Um, I was going to say something. I mean, we were talking a little bit ago about the fact that we we don't really have a lot of uh, you know, no one's ever really you know caught a dogman or a or a Sasquatch or Bigfoot or anything with all this stuff. And the first time I'd heard really put it on a, another supernatural level was a book by Tom Horn called Nephilim Stargates. Mm-hmm. And he was contemplating, and this has been probably at least 10, 12 years ago, uh, about the fact that they were possibly coming in and out through portals. And that's why we were never, ever going to, we weren't going to catch these things or find stuff. I've, I mean, different people have different ideas of, mm-hmm. you know, oh, Bigfoot buries its bed and they do all this stuff. But that one makes a lot of sense because it seems like they just kind of, and it, it seems like it's that with a lot of these types of cryptid creatures, they they're seen and then they're gone and there's, mm-hmm. there's no tracks of them. And uh, I just think that's kind of interesting that it could be, uh, you know, that, 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 that the portal aspect blows my mind. That's possible. I mean, yeah. that, that would explain, particularly with the case of Dogman, um, 
You know, you, these right. guys, you know, I mean, seasoned outdoorsmen who, who live this stuff, you know, ranch owners and people that just live outdoors, not being able to track those things back to a lair. That's really, really peculiar. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Judd, do you have any dog man stories for us? I, I wanted to, I've been wanting to ask you that. Have you seen one? I don't or, have or, any, uh, you have any stories? Personally, I don't have any dog man stories. Um, the, um, you know, we're, we're in a day and age where we're getting closer to be able to, to quantify and certainly at least record sightings and encounters that people are having. And, you know, right. like, my, like my friend, the late Dr. Hauser used to say, it just takes one of those experiences to be real, to just bust the paradigm wide open. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that they're far more than, you know, in, the, in that case, I think they're far more than just one legitimate, you know, experience. Otherwise people wouldn't be having them. Even if you can write yeah. write some of them off to hearsay, um, you know some of the the people making these reports and accounts, you know they're, you know like these these ranchers in Texas, you know these guys live and work outside. They know the land that they're on. Uh, virtually all of them are seasoned hunters. Uh, you know, the kind of folks that I grew up around with, and for them not to be able to track something like that back to the lair is just almost unheard of. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. I always think back. I, I will tell you some when I when I was taking your class, Judd, that um, there was part. I, I was reading something. That was kind of talking about that there was this uh, a scholar and demonologist. His name was, I think it's Ludovico Maria Sinistari. Mm -hmm. Um, I, it's it's a tough name. I just remember, but he he made a quote that it was undoubted by theologians and philosophers that carnal intercourse be between mankind and the demons sometimes gives birth to human beings. Mm -hmm. And that is how the Antichrist is born. That's what he says in this thing. And I, at that point, my brain goes, does all of this stuff with cryptids, does the majority of it, does it all lead back to Genesis 6-4? Does this all go back to this whole thing with the fallen angels and the, you know, uh, you know, and the Dr. Judd quote of all time i'm not going to say it but uh, everything's pregnant with lots of meaning <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just crossed them together right um but yeah but that to me makes sense that a lot of these crypt i mean where there's varied stuff but they all seem to have they they all have some form of human aspects to them mm -hmm. They're not even none of them are completely even when you look at they all still even with dogman and and and, and uh, you know, Sasquatch, you think they still have this, there's a human feature to them mm -hmm. that feels yeah. like, not like when you see a bear mm -hmm. or you see something like that. there's this aspect of this blending of uh, two things. Mm -hmm. And I well, just wonder and, if the majority of cryptids are based like that. Well, there's also uh, accounts of superior intelligence too, of, you know, not animal intelligence, but I mean, even among Sasquatch and Bigfoot, they, mm -hmm. they're smarter than maybe we, even we are, mm -hmm. you know? And so that's another it aspect. It wouldn't take much, Brandon. Huh. Well, <laughs> and, and if like, like some people have theorized, I, I, I don't know, I haven't made my mind up about this, but some, some people theorize that certain populations of Sasquatch may be remnant populations of, of giants. <clears throat> that have just become feral. Uh, that's a possibility. That's very possible. Uh, yeah, no, I can see that. You know, that, Pigs come feral in two weeks, so... <laughs> that, expl that explains, uh, you know, just in general, that explains why demons are powerful, why they're more intelligent, or while they exhibit the ability to speak multiple languages, um, because, you know, they've had millennia to study um, and they're, you know, some measure of their strength is retained in their spirituality. Um, but there's one reference, um, one, one connection in the Bible kind of circling back to vampires that I, I thought about. And actually it was Gary Wayne that, that sort of brought this to my attention. Um, but m most Bible readers will be familiar with the Amalekites. Uh, one of the, yes. the tribes that the Hebrews had to contend with. Um, in fact, Moses and Joshua and the, the Hebrews coming out of Egypt um, were ambushed by the Amalekites in, in southern Canaan uh, in the, the kind of steppe desert region. Um, 
this is kind of the the homeland and if we look at the the genealogies in the bible uh amalek was the grandson of esau and um what's interesting about the amalekites is that they're they're kind of like one of the the most um they're one of the most resilient foes of of the Hebrews as they're settling Canaan and even at, even into like the uh the early kingdom period um because they're they're never able to to totally wipe them out um but the um there's something interesting that happens with uh, after this ambush of the Amalekites and the Hebrews um this this first military exchange between the Hebrews and the Amalekites um Moses builds this altar um and Yahweh basically he speaks this directive over the Hebrews that they're essentially supposed to wage this ever war against the Amalekites and to blot out their memory completely mm. um so there, there there's definitely this supernatural undergirding you know yeah it, it it's not as if it's a general rule but it's directed specifically at the amalekites uh which always struck. i've always thought that was cryptic yeah it's, it's always sounded cryptic well, every time you read it you know here it, it occurred to me after i had heard gary talk about it that um there seems to be a link between vampirism and the Amalekites, because if you mm. break the na- if you break the name down, that same um, morpheme LK is in the Amalekites, uh, yeah. and in fact, their name literally means the blood lickers or the blood drinkers. Mm. And so I've I've oh, often wow. again this is just this is like this is in the area of hypothesis. I haven't had, had a chance to flesh this out myself, but. It seems that there may be some sort of link, you know, um, between vampirism and the Amalekites. Um, oh, that's that's cool. Because of oh, no, I mean, wow. it's again, it's right there in the name. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. just sort of hiding yeah. in plain sight. Um, so I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, what sort of connections there may be since Esau is part of that line. Um, I, I often wonder because the uh, the apocryphal material has Esau being the one who actually uh, ends up killing Nimrod, and he takes back the um, um, well the birthright actually that he gives her the skins uh, that Adam and Eve had had. That's it's not referenced in the canonical uh, account of of Jacob and Esau, uh, but I suspect that that was part of the. Um, uh, part of the exchange there, so I'm not sure if those, you know, if that plays a part in the story of the Amalekites or not. My suspicion is yes, but it's just a gut feeling at this point. Um, but I think that that's another group uh, that's going to bear more, more. It bears more questioning, more study uh, in terms of a link between vampirism and actually, where you have like boots on the ground, uh, so to speak. Um, and you know, the potential that, that those bloodlines continue to exist, um, in, in families is another thing that I've heard Gary talk about, um, on a number of occasions. So, um, yeah, I don't know that he made the Aluka Amalek, uh, connection, but that's, that seems to be, seems to tie that with at least the idea of vampirism. Uh, and it's interesting that that's, you know, once the Hebrews are starting to re-enter the, you know, they get past Midian and they're they're entering into to lands adjoining Canaan, you've got this group called the Blood Drinkers that ambushes them, uh, and then and then after that initial attack, uh, Moses sets up this this monument, you know, this altar, and God says, you know, you've got to hunt these people down and and blot out their memory. All right, well. Correct my theology or my my biblical theology if I'm wrong, but isn't that the group they were fighting that Joshua was fighting when Aaron and her had to lift yes. Moses' hands mm-hmm. up? Mm-hmm. 
So see, there's there's a spiritual significance there mm-hmm. too. I mean, that's interesting. Yep. Moses had to in- intercede while Joshua was fighting the blood lickers. That's mm-hmm. that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. That's powerful. Wow. Still. Yeah, I hadn't considered that. Yeah. Sounds like we've got a new place to go. <laughs> Old Testament. There's some good stuff there, man. Spirit, I'm taking notes. Spiritual warfare. Yeah, I am yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, that blew me out about the Amalekites. I mean, I've never heard that ever, ever. So well, it makes it, perfect sense. Again, it's one of those things that's just hiding in plain sight. You know, there's if 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 you weren't familiar with Hebrew, you wouldn't. You know, and even even in, in instances when you are like I like I've read that passage, I'm sure dozens of times, and mm-hmm. not put that together, and then and then I heard a, a interview with Jerry, and I'm just like, oh my gosh. He may be on to something. So, um, Dr. Judd, we wrap up our podcast usually if, if it's a new guest, asking them a question. What's the most supernatural or paranormal thing that you've ever seen, like since you've been saved or walking with Jesus or whatever? you tell us a story? Yeah, I could tell you a story. Um... But then he'd have to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right, this has been a great podcast. See you guys later. Yeah. Bye. Probably <laughs> the most paranormal thing that I ever saw um, happened when I was in college. And uh, my brother and another friend of ours were praying for a kid who had been involved in a, a, a coven of kind of self-styled witches, you know, they kind of took the buffet approach. Dabblers. Uh, yeah, dab- we well, they were a little beyond dabblers. Uh, they had their own oh, okay. system that they developed. But um, this kid in particular got really afraid, and he was one of the more adept um, of them. And uh, he had, at one point in time, um, he had cast a, a spell on a, a kid in the school there, the high school, uh, for him to have yeah. trouble with cars. And it dawned on me when he when he related this to us, I, I knew this other kid because he was a friend of my brother's. It dawned on me as he was telling us this that this guy had this kid had wrecked like four or five cars oh, over wow. the course of like just the <laughs> previous, you know, six or seven months. Um, wow. And I was like, okay, now it's now it's stepping out of all the weird books that I'm I'm reading, and it's you know the stuff is real. Um, thankfully, we were able to help help this kid get out of it and get delivered. Um, but that that ranks definitely like in the top five, easy, if not the top. Yeah. Mm. Wow, that's an awesome story. Wow. Well, cool. Freaky. Yeah, really freaky. Well, I mean, four cars. I mean, that's that's the, the statistics for that is just astronomical. I know. I know. I know. It. <laughs> that, it was just so, one of those, not just an aha moment, but it was, you know, goosebumps and hair on the back of your neck standing up, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when you're, you're still in your formative years and you're, you know, by day, you're studying to be a historian and in the evenings you're reading all kinds of, of stuff about demons, you know, by Kurt Kosh and, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Who else is I reading at the time? I was reading everything I'd get my hands on. Um, Bullfinch's mythology, uh, James Frazier's the golden bow, you know, like comparative study on magic and religion. Um, Crowley stuff. You know, just to just to try and wrap my head around what was what was going on, um, and um, yeah, it's it's real. It's not hyperbole. You know, I think that's a good message for everybody to hear from coming out of your mouth. Is is it's real? You know, we 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 like to talk about it. It's fun, and I, I love it. And it serves a role and it's, it's a purpose, but we have to remember that this is real stuff, you know, and, and the powers of darkness, they ain't, they ain't playing. <laughs> but we say down here in the South, yeah, they ain't sure. playing. So, 
Well, thank you, Dr. Judd, and thank you, Kenny, so much for yeah. coming on the show, co-hosting. Yeah, I've enjoyed it thoroughly, and I love your stories. and And this is gonna this is gonna be released right close to that spooky day that nobody likes to talk what? about. So. <laughs> Thanks for listening and supporting us. And remember, stay naturally supernatural.